Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of John, and God willing, we will complete John chapter six this morning. My son referred to this as part eight, part two, but um, I'm not sure how you're counting, but as, as in the first week when we began studying this monumental chapter, we read through the chapter. I'd like to begin by reading John chapter six. It really is a unified whole especially for some of our guests, to see where we've come, to see how this ties together. Um, as you turn to John chapter 6, I'll remind you, it begins with a miracle, the only attested miracle of our Lord in his ministry that's in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. Then there's transition as the disciples, and then Jesus, and then the remnants of the crowd cross the sea to Capernaum. They meet up with Jesus, and he begins to teach and unpack the true significance of the miracle. He is the bread of life. And they begin to grumble. They don't like what he's saying. And then there's a winnowing. As first we deal with the crowd, and then the Jews, and then the disciples. And last week we saw the disciples departing. And Jesus finally turns on the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? So let's read John chapter 6, and then we'll work through this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to eat a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, his disciples distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near, the place where they had eaten the bread, 
after the Lord had given thanks. So then the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him on whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. 
not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you, the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord God, as we finish our study of this chapter, I pray that you would give us the faith to respond, not as the crowd not as the Jews, not as the disciples who forsook. Give us the faith of Peter. Give us the faith to receive even hard words from our Lord. We would eat the true bread of life and have life. We would look to the Son of Man and be saved. We would not die, but have eternal life. And we know that You give this freely, but only through your son. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant us faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began with the response of Jesus' false disciples, those disciples who fell away. And I remind you, make no mistake, Jesus tells them they don't believe. We see their unbelief in the departure. These people are not right with God. These people are not saved. I mentioned that sometimes people will say, first you become a Christian and then you become a disciple. You, you need to be doing better than these guys who forsake Jesus. And we, we considered that the crucial element about the reception of Jesus was his teaching. The crowd loved the miracles. The crowds always loved Jesus' miracles. And he, he'd do compassionate miracles. He'd heal the sick. He'd feed them. Oh, they loved that they are even willing to make him king geopolitically. They're willing to receive Jesus as a prophet, the prophet, like Moses. They're willing to receive him even as a geopolitical king. But where they trip up on is his teaching, his words. Don't miss that. It's Jesus' teaching that they grumble about. How can he say, I've come down from heaven? How can he give us his flesh to eat? And then most clearly in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? By contrast, the response of Peter and the faithful disciples hinges upon reception of Jesus' teaching. Look at Peter's statement. Where else can we go? You have the words of life. So 
the point of the summary of this chapter, then the point of the closing of this message is John would have us see clearly what saving faith looks like, what it means to truly receive Jesus. We've seen a crowd that in one sense is intimidating. They came out into the wilderness to meet Jesus. They, they put effort into it. This is the Middle East. And then they most likely slept in that location that night, got up in the morning, traveled to sea in boats, seeking Jesus. And yet, they're not right with God. Jesus tells them they do not believe. He says, you've seen me and you do not believe. And we get disciples, people who would identify Jesus as their teacher, people following him at some level. And yet, because of the hardness of his teaching, they turn around and go home. They can't receive his word. John would have us see that saving faith involves receiving Jesus and his word and his teaching. That's the decisive mark here. And so John would have us believe and know the Holy One of God. So let's just move quickly. Verse 67, we have Jesus questioned to the 12. Jesus questioned, Jesus questions the 12. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now, an interesting note here. This is the first time in John's gospel that he references the 12. He'll reference them four times. Three of them are in this passage. And once more, he'll reference them at the very end of the book in John 20, 24. He'll identify Thomas, one of the 12. Now, what's interesting is even though John has given us translations of other terms, such as rabbi, which means teacher, he's told us that the Sea of Galilee is also the Sea of Tiberias. He introduces the 12 with no explanation. Again, another mark that John thinks he's writing to. He expects his readers are familiar with the basic players and the basic plot points of Jesus' life. He introduces Andrew as Peter's brother before he introduces Peter, as as an example. We've seen the reference to this was before John was arrested and thrown in prison, even though John's gospel never records that event. And here again, it's another indication. John is writing to people he thinks are following with him and are aware of the basic people and plot points. The 12, no explanation. He assumes we know. He assumes we know. And so we're seeing this winnowing. It starts with a vast crowd. The crowd gets narrowed down to the Jews in Capernaum. That gets narrowed down to his disciples. Now we're down to the 12 and those disciples that stayed around. And Jesus asked this question, do you want to go as well? John assumes we know who the 12 are. Jesus acts in response to the disciples' apostasy. The text makes that clear. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So, because of this, Jesus said to the twelve. So, what's the rationale? How does the connection of the apostasy of the disciples make this the next logical question? Because of their apostasy and unbelief, Jesus requires the challenge he's made. And we've seen that. As gracious as Jesus can be in John's gospel, we've seen him doggedly pursue the woman at the well, bringing her to faith. We've seen the humility of Jesus dining with and and living with for a few days Samaritans. There are other points where Jesus simply will not back down. In fact, he doubles down. His claims of divinity, he he won't back down on them. His, His teaching of he being the necessary food for life, he is the gate. He, he will not back down and soften those edges. And this is another one of those points that demands a response. 
Now, the logic is, we saw in verse 14, this is the prophet. We've seen again and again, Deuteronomy 18, we know the reference to the prophet is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18. I'll remind you, the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, they are right where they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And we, we, we consider that the hallmark responsibility for those who apprehend the prophet like Moses is they are responsible and will be judged for whether or not they listen to and hear the words of him or not. And so it's not surprising. That's the critical issue in this chapter. If Jesus is the prophet like Moses, then the disciples' response in verse 60 is precisely wrong. Who can listen to it, they say. That's exactly what God requires of them. It's exactly what God, they fail the test. And so the the others who stay, it needs a clear resolution. It's been brought up now. If Jesus is the prophet like Moses, if he is the new lawgiver, if he is the one who speaks on behalf of God, you cannot be silent and stay on the fence. Those who departed and went home, they made it clear where they're at. Jesus insists, okay, those who stuck around, where are you at? Do you want to go away as well? Jesus asks in response to the disciples' apostasy, and his challenge demands a clear resolution. Turn, turn over to chapter 14 quickly. Again, in in as many ways as Jesus can be flexible, in as many ways that Jesus can humble himself and condescend, his teaching is not one of them. His words, his law, his commands, his instruction are not suggestions. They're not guidelines. They are the words of life which will judge us, Jesus says. Don't receive my word, I won't judge you. The word I've spoken will judge you, he says. But look in John 14, in the upper room. Two verses, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. As Jesus is talking to the 11 in the upper room, he's again centering the crucial issue on what we do with his words. Um, what we do with his words. And so here with the 11, okay? The, the unbelieving portion has made itself known. They have revealed themselves. They have resolved the issue. And the, the way they resolve it is they abandon discipleship of Jesus. Okay, you remaining, pick your team, pick your side. I think the second reason Jesus asked them is not just because his demand demands a resolution, but equally we've seen in John 3, their faith should desire an opportunity to express itself. Faith wants to confess. Turn back to chapter 3. Quickly. Quickly. Chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, at the culmination of the Nicodemus encounter, we get this summary statement in 19 to 21 explaining the two distinct responses to Jesus. 
and why people respond the way they do. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But look at 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who God is working in, those who God is working faith in, those who are being drawn want to come and reveal and give glory to God. So for two reasons, I think Jesus asked this question. One, to make it clear, there's no dodging this demand. You either respond in faith or you forsake him. There is no discipleship to Jesus without commitment to receive and follow his word. And they can't just be silent and unresolved. And their faith, Jesus knowing what's in their heart, needs and should seek an opportunity to confess itself, just as the unbelief and apostasy of the false disciples has been revealed. Okay, so that's, that's the question. Verses 68 and 69, we get Peter confesses their faith. Peter confesses their faith. I love this. We, the, close, the song we sang before the message this morning has this in it, if you didn't miss it. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. First, notice the title, Lord. This is in contrast to the declining honorific titles the people have been giving Jesus. In 114, this is the prophet. They want to make him king. When they meet Jesus in back in chapter 6, verse, oh, where is it? 6, 25, they call him a respectful rabbi. It's not nearly as good as the prophet or king, but rabbi. And by the time they're grumbling, look what they say about him. They say in verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man? So their, 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 their titles for Jesus have been declining in contrast, Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is, this is the hallmark of what true discipleship and true faith looks like. This is, this is the genuine article in contrast to everything else we've seen in this chapter. The, the crowds that flock for miracles but choke on hard teaching. The Jews who grumble because they know his parents. So how can he take such airs upon himself? The disciples who, well, this is a hard teaching, so I'm going to go home. This is what is in contrast to that. This is what we should be um, having in our own lives and hearts. This is how John, the, the gospel writer of faith, would show us what faith looks like. And this is confession. And I don't think that Peter has fully wrapped his head around this eating and drinking. We, we know that much of what Jesus says goes over the disciples' heads. John's already referenced that in chapter 2 when he said, we'll destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And John tells us helpfully, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body, and his disciples, after his resurrection, when they remembered it, believed the scriptures. But they didn't get it. We know from the other gospels that Jesus' mission to sacrifice himself was not something Peter had his head wrapped around. When Jesus tells him this, he says, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So I don't think the distinction is between those who fully understand the depths of what Jesus has said and those who don't. The distinction is between those who will submit themselves to the authority of the new Moses and those who won't. Peter, in other words, I think, if I were to say it, 
I don't know many things, but I know this. There's nowhere else to go, and you have the words of eternal life. And for John's perspective, that's good enough. That's good enough. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So here's what Peter knows. There is no other place to go for truth and life. I know God draws people to faith in many different ways, but this is my own drawing to, to, to faith in Christ. Followed a pattern that, that very much empathizes with this. I, I threw myself into many pursuits. Um, and, I, and, I, and like Solomon in the Ecclesiastes, I found them one after another, after another, vain, vain, vain. The postmodern mindset has recognized the limitations of creatureliness and, and rightly points out that as creatures, we can't know anything with objective certainty. Everything becomes relative. You have your truth. I have my truth. They have their truth. And if you keep your eyes below the sun without taking into account a transcendent God, that's true. And so we can despair of meaning and truth. Where else can we go? One of the things I became innately aware of as I began to read my Bible and consider these things is if I'm left to my own devices, I don't have truth. I don't have meaning. And Peter is aware there are no other offers for truth and talent. It's not as though Jesus is a way and God's provided. This is popular as well. There are many ways to God and some people come through Jesus and some people come through Allah and some people come through Vishnu and on and on and on. No, there's only one game in town for truth. There's only one source of words of eternal life, and it's here. And Peter says, where else can we go? There is no other place to go for truth and life. And then explicitly, the rhetorical question, he, he gives his answer. You, Jesus alone, here's your blank, Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And this is set up back in, in John chapter 1 in the prologue. You remember? John writes in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Part of the reason John stresses Jesus' divinity, Jesus' preexistence, is the link is this. Because Jesus comes from the Father, because Jesus is one with and in fellowship with the Father, then Jesus and Jesus alone is qualified and able to give the very words of the Father. That's, that's the rationale. Jesus is in a unique position, having come from... This is also why he insists upon his deity. He won't back down on it. His deity is the basis of the claim of the authority of his word. And Peter gets that much. He gets that much. My guess isn't so sure about this eating and drinking stuff. He's going to have to take some time to chew on that one. But I do know you have the words of eternal life. And that's, that's fine. When you read a hard passage in scripture, when you read something you don't understand, to recognize this is hard, this is challenging. And recognize that in saying that, it's not that God's word is not light and life, but it's some, some frailty, some weakness, some corruption in me. But, but freely acknowledge that. I, I love this confession of Peter, just like I love the demoniac man who says, Lord, I, the father of the demoniac, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love categories like that. Lord, I'm struggling here. I'm not sure what you're up to. This is hard. But I do know one thing. You are good. I do know one thing. You, you are in control. I do know that you have the words of life. And I do know there's no other place to turn. Like, that's, that's okay. That is just all right. That is fine. 
Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other place to go for truth and life. And Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Then we get to the second part. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And without getting into a discussion of Greek grammar and the perfect verb tense, let me just say this. The way Peter says this, the verb tense he uses, emphasizes the, the current state, the settled state of their faith. He's, he's declaring, in other words, here's your blanks. They have a settled and confident faith. They have a settled and confident faith. This isn't transitory, transient, transitory. Sorry, Dave, that's not a word, is it? Transient. It's not going to come and go and be fickle. We have come to believe. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They have a settled and confident faith. This started as early as John chapter 1. John's been showing us their faith grow. First as they meet Jesus at the camp of John the Baptist. And Andrew says, come, come, I found the Messiah. And then they go to the wedding at Cana. And we read in chapter 2, verse 11, after he turned the water to wine, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so they've been seeing and taking it in and they've been responding in faith. And now Peter's able to make this confession. By the way, as best as we can harmonize the gospels, this is right about the time of the Mount of Transfiguration. When we start chapter 7, we'll be jumping about seven months into the future um, from here. The, uh, the, the Passover's in the spring and the Feast of Booths is in the fall. And somewhere in between there is when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's when Peter makes his great confession. So this is the point where the disciples are starting to really put it together and settle their conclusions. He is. He is. They're confident in their faith. And they confess Jesus' greatness. They confess Jesus' greatness. Now, this title is strange because there's very little antecedent of it. The Holy One of God does not appear directly to connect to any messianic title, anything in the Old Testament. It is found in at least one other place. But strangely, it's on the tongues of demoniacs. But what seems clear about it is this. If you simply take it at face value, Jesus is the holy one. He, he is the one set apart. He is the one who is pure. He is the one who is undefiled. He's God's holy one, and he is the holy one. There aren't many holy ones. It, it has to mean at least Messiah. It might mean more. They might have implied deity in here. I can't be certain simply because it is a strange title. It is an unusual title. The holy one of God. But Jesus accepts that clearly in, Luke's, in, in John's account, this is meant to be a good thing. So Peter, speaking for the faithful remnant, says, well, there's nowhere else to go. You do have the words of life. And we know this. We have come to believe and know you are the Holy One of God. And when you are facing difficult words from God, that's a fine thing. I'm not sure how this works. I'm not, I'm not sure what to make of this. This is hard. This is difficult. This is challenging. But I'm confident it's good and it's right and it's true. And I'm confident that when I understand it, when you give me grace to understand it, I'm going to see it as good. But I'm not going anywhere. That's what discipleship and salvation looks like. So then in verses 70 to 71, finally, we see Jesus establishes his sovereignty. And again, this is Jesus really pushing his authority. You might think in the face of that confession, Jesus might say, okay, praise God. 
Some of you guys get it. Good job, guys. Good job. But Jesus perhaps senses in Peter's confession even a slight amount of pomposity, a slight amount of of pride, and he will have none of it. He's been teaching the sovereignty of God in this passage. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so in response to Peter's great confession, Jesus says, and I sense in this a subtle rebuke, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. What's going on here? Well, Jesus first emphasizes his choice, his choice. It's possible, I don't know how Peter said it, that the we have come to believe and we have come to know might have a certain amount of supercilious self-importance to it. We figured it out. We're the good guys. We're the, we're the faithful ones. And Jesus emphasizing what he said previously, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him, recognizes that their faith in him is founded upon his choice of them. We get the blessing in salvation, but God gets 100% of the glory. God would be praised for your faith. He would have the credit for it. And so here Jesus pushes back his choice. Did I not choose you, the 12? And what we get from this is the 12 cannot boast about their faith. The 12 cannot boast about their faith. Again, we saw in John 3, those who come to the light do so. Why? That it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The people who come to the light want to confess, not I figured it out, not I put it together, but God's done a work in me. We're going to hear four people this morning confess similarly. And they're not confessing their intelligence, their moral virtue. They're confessing the goodness and the greatness of God who works in their hearts and draws men and women to himself. And Jesus here insists all credit and all glory for that goes to the Father. The 12 cannot boast in their faith. And we saw, again, earlier, their faith itself is the gift of God. This is the point Jesus makes to Nicodemus in chapter 3. This is the point he's made again and again in chapter 4. If, if they've put together what he said, then if they are those who have come to him, if they are those who have believed in him, then they are those whom the Father has gifted with faith. They are them who have been taught by God. They are those who've been drawn by the Father. And then we also see Jesus' knowledge, his knowledge. Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And I think part of this is to make it clear, and John emphasizes this, you'll see Judas mentioned here twice in our passage and in last week's passage. John wants to emphasize, at the very least, that Jesus is not taken unawares. He's not surprised. The, uh, the betrayal of Judas is not surprising to our Lord. He, he's aware of it. It will grieve him, yes, it will trouble him and vex him, yes. But from this early date, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. It's not as though we're off plan when Jesus betrays him. And so Jesus recognizes both his choice and his knowledge, yet one of whose he knows. He knows who believes. He knows who doesn't. And again, just pause and consider the loving kindness of our Lord because Jesus says things like this, one of you is a devil, and the, the, the 11 don't all go, Judas, right? 
The implication is, even at the Last Supper, they don't, is it me, is it me, is it me? The, the, the implication we can draw from this is Jesus' interaction with them was such that they did not detect anything sufficiently different about the way he interacted with Judas than how he interacted with them. Jesus was just as patient and kind and loving and tender. At least they didn't notice any distinction. It's a mystery to them. Who is it? And it also means that false brethren for a time can appear genuine. Nothing in Judas's life for these three years evidenced that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. So Jesus knows who will betray him. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, probably meaning from a certain town. For he, one of the twelve, is going to betray him. And this is related later in John's gospel. So rather than looking into that now, I want to just close by looking at four main themes in John 6. I hope as you read through this, part of the reason why we read it this morning is hopefully by studying it for these last eight weeks, you can put it together. You can make sense of it. My, my goal will be that as you reread it, that you understand what you're reading. So here I'd suggest you four themes. There's, there's easily more, but these four came to me and... and are large in my sight. One, Jesus is the promised prophet like Moses, the new lawgiver. This was set up all the way back in John chapter one. Go back to chapter one briefly. Um, This messianic title of the prophet like Moses is really the dominant title for Jesus so far in John's gospel. It's set up back in verse 14 of chapter one. The word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace, a grace upon grace. And then he explains what he means, this idea of a grace replacing a grace, a grace in place of a grace. For the law was given through Moses. There's your first grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So even as early as 117, Jesus is pictured as something eclipsing, something replacing, something greater than Moses. And then we get the title of the prophet in the interrogation of John the Baptist. In verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? It's Deuteronomy 18. Well, this crowd in John chapter 6 says this. This is indeed the prophet. He's identified. And then the rest of the unfolding chapter, as we look at their response to Jesus, shows they won't receive him as prophet. They won't hear his words. Why would you think the prophet like Moses would bring easy, happy, fun teachings only? Surely the Israelites at the base of Sinai, when Moses came down with the law and read it to them, surely there are portions of the law that were hard to receive. I mean, just why would you think The prophet like Moses would only say things you agree with. Why would a God, the God who is, only say things you agree with? Because we like to fashion God in our own image. We like to imagine, my God wouldn't say this. My God wouldn't do this. You're right. Your God wouldn't do that. He doesn't exist. The matters is who 
God has revealed himself to be. And it's not him conforming himself to our image and conforming himself to our ways. But it's a matter of us submitting and conforming ourselves to his. So Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He is the new lawgiver. Two, Jesus is the true bread from heaven, which gives eternal life. Now, surely this is the center part of Jesus' teaching in the discourse. There's a bread that came down from heaven. It was miraculous. It was wonderful. And the people who ate it eventually died. And Jesus insists this antitype points to him. He is ultimately the food source that gives eternal life. And then he puts a finer point on it, making the point his flesh, his flesh being offered up on behalf of the world. And so by the end of this discourse, Jesus makes it clear it is his person offered on the cross, his body nailed to a tree. That is what must be received. That is what must be taken in for us to be saved. He's not talking about the Eucharist. He's not talking about communion. He's talking about faith. We saw that plainly. I'll remind you one last time in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The key to the metaphor, eating and drinking, is that coming to Jesus results in hunger ending. What activity is that being likened to? It's being likened to eating. And believing in him results in never thirsting. What activity is believing being likened to? To drinking. So coming to Jesus in this metaphor is like eating, and believing in Jesus is like drinking, and that then helps set the stage for the rest of the discussion. It's not for another year that Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper. Nobody, nobody in Capernaum, nobody of the 5,000 would make any connections with the Passover meal or with things Jesus has not yet said. Jesus is the true bread from heaven which gives eternal life. Point three. Faith then is likened to a number of things. This is a gospel about faith. Believe, 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 believe. You don't have to do anything. Believe. Oh, you must be willing to do all sorts of things. But you don't have to do anything first. Believe. Only believe. But we've seen people already, and we'll see more people in chapter 8, who are said to believe, and yet clearly they're not right with God. And so part of John's purpose is to highlight the true nature of saving faith. So I want to pay attention when John uses different metaphors. And so sure, Jesus says plainly when they ask him in verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. But the chapter's got a number of other metaphors for belief, doesn't it? Believing then is also likened to looking to. This is the father's will that whoever looks upon the son And believes in him. Verse 40. We raise in the last day. Looking to. Connecting with the serpent. Lifted in the wilderness. Looking to with faith. It's likened to eating. And it's likened to drinking. So faith is taking in Christ for all who he is. And we've seen clearly that you you can't bifurcate. You can't receive Jesus as savior and not prophet. You can't receive Jesus as miracle worker. And not Lord. That's, that's, that's why the disciples went home. This brings us finally to the final point, and then we'll sing our closing song. And this, and this is most important and practical for us. I'm assuming if you're here this morning, to some degree, you have some allegiance, some confession, something good to say about Jesus. 
But look at all these others in this passage who fall by the wayside. There are so few who remain. There are so few who endure. This is, this is the why did the disciples return and go home? Why did they do that? Because they refuse to keep his word. So here's your point, last point. To grumble and refuse his word is to disbelieve and refuse Jesus. Now Jesus says that plainly. His disciples say in verse 60, this is a hard saying who can listen to it. And Jesus says, don't grumble, don't take offense. Look at 64. There are some of you who do not believe. Jesus equates their grumbling. Jesus equates their refusal to receive his teaching, his unbelief in him. And they confirm that by going home and stopping to follow him. There is no coming to Christ savingly and yet reserving the right to pick and choose which of his commands you're going to receive and which of his commands you're going to reject. I like that one. That one seems unreasonable. You would, if that's where you're at, you'd be with the crowd going home. And so, yes, Jesus has some hard things to say. And depending on the day and age we live in, will depend on which hard things Jesus says will offend. We covered some of those last week. I just would, would, would plead with you not to deceive yourselves. If you are reserving the right to pick and choose which of our Lord's words you will receive and obey... Who has the ultimate authority? Functionally for you, who is God? You are. Because you get to pick and choose. Oh, that one, not this one. That one, not this one. Who, who has the authority? You do. Salvation is a free gift. It's freely offered to all. But you don't get to pick and choose which part of Jesus' teaching, which part of Jesus' identity. You receive him as he is, as Lord. You confess with Peter, even to the hard things, Lord, where else shall we go? You alone are the words of life. And you join Peter in confessing, for we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And call the worship team up. Let's have a word of prayer. I'll remind you that afterwards, the coffee, the donuts, and the baptisms, and the quarterly meeting will be in the gym. Please stand. <laughs>